Thank you for listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. This podcast explores God at work in the streets of Canadian cities. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. When you uh, study the Bible, perhaps if you've been to Bible college or even if you go to a Bible teaching church, uh, maybe there are uh, classes at your church that teach you on how to study the Bible. And uh, the whole um, science of studying the Bible and uh, coming to understand what it means is the, the uh, science of hermeneutics. One of the components of hermeneutics is exegesis. Exegesis is when we take the text and we, uh, through various means, uncover what is the clearest meaning of what is being said. What do these words mean? And um, similarly, community exegesis is when we ask the question, what are the people and the culture uh, that we find in our city saying to us? If you are a Christ follower and uh, you're asking God to uh, show you by his spirit, uh, what, what do you need to hear? What do you need to see? For him who has ears to hear and him who has eyes to see, Jesus talks about this. And uh, so community exegesis is the um, practice of listening to our city and seeing uh, what God wants us to hear from the, the voices, the actions, and the culture of the people in our city. So somebody who's been doing that for 16 years in Toronto is E.J. Tupé. He's a Mission Canada worker and uh, has spent countless hours every week uh, on the streets of his city interacting with people and constantly asking the, the Lord to um, help him to hear what's going on in his city. This episode was recorded at the Our City Toronto Conference and uh, so we're going to listen to EJ as he talks about community exegesis. So the premise of what we're going to talk about is basically this question from the Good Samaritan story. Everyone familiar with that one? Right? So in the Good Samaritan story, this, this lawyer, teacher of the law, asks Jesus, uh, what is the greatest commandment? Right? For those of you who have ever gone to Bible college, whenever people are asking theology questions in the foyer, they're not actually asking the answer to that question. They're asking to, let's have an argument in Jesus' name. <laughs> sorry, Stefan, did I trigger you? I'm sorry. So love you, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I answered the one on do women belong in ministry, so there we go. <laughs> yes. Um, but then after Jesus answers his question, if you actually recognize, uh, Jesus did this thing called, I call it a theological like karate chop, because Jesus says, instead of Jesus answering the question, what did he say? What, what does the law, what, what do you think? Right? When someone asks you a question, let me ask you a better question. And then the guy agrees, like, I agree theologically. But then he asks this question, who is my neighbor? Why would he ask that? 
He's asking that because he's trying to figure out who am I allowed to not care for? Yeah, you're in a workshop. Yeah, our, our, our panel is now. Yeah, you're talking now. <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to be talking. I forgot my wig. Anyway, so he asked this question because he's trying to figure out, okay, who, I love your neighbor. I get that. But who is my neighbor? Trying to figure out who is excluded. And so the idea behind community exegesis is actually the opposite of that question. We're trying to reframe that question where we're asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? It's a new term. It's not taught in Bible colleges. So the idea is the word community. These are some definitions that we look, we're working with. A unified body of individuals, people with common interests. In my particular context, I'm talking about specific neighborhoods. So if you live in downtown Toronto, every downtowner who lives in the city, the first question someone asks is, oh, you live downtown? What's the next question? Which neighborhood? And if you can't give a neighborhood, you don't live downtown. <laughs> Oakville is not downtown. <laughs> I'm not going to say which church plant call themselves, you know, church plant in Toronto in Oakville. <laughs> I sent them an email. They didn't talk to me back. <laughs> so the idea behind community exegesis is how can I understand the context of the people that I'm trying to reach? Okay? The reason why this is important is because the city of Toronto is one of the most unchurched cities in the world. Okay? A lot of people don't know that. So my neighborhood, for example, we're going to go through statistics of my neighborhood. So my neighborhood approximately is about 66,000. Okay? Less than 1% of people go to church. They'll say they're a Christian. There may be 40% that'll say they're Christian, but that doesn't mean they're part of a faith community. Right? So when Jesus said, I will leave the 99 sheep to go after the one, I make a joke. In my neighborhood, it's actually half a sheep in the pen and 99 and a half scattered. So this means community exegesis is really important. But I'm going to just talk about my hood for now, okay? Because I'm an expert in my hood. If you want to be a missionary in a community, you need to be the expert in a hood. The reason why I say this is I remember there was a church planter uh, who I met, I was introduced to him and said, oh, he wants to plant in Toronto. Then I said, cool, man, what a neighborhood. And he said, Liberty Village and Parkdale. Okay. And I was like, no, nah, bro. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? It's like, I know they're like beside each other, but those people like don't hang out for a reason. And then he didn't, you know what I'm talking about. So I walked him in that neighborhood and I knew those neighborhoods better than he did. And I had to tell him, if you're going to plant here, you need to know these corners better than I do. I don't even live here. I like pass by here in a streetcar, right? You need to know that these are your people. And the reason, uh, before I, I go to the technical stuff, I'll tell you a story. One of the odd things I try to do is I try to have capacity to be opportunistic in how to meet my neighbors, okay? And how I do that, some of the things I've done is um, uh, one time I, I'm part of, a, I, used to, I used to be a bike mechanic, so part of a community bike shop. So what that is is um, people like me who are bike mechanics will teach you how to fix your bike. It's a cool idea. It's a great way for me to meet my neighbors. So a real estate agent wanted to hire one of the, the uh, members to do 
to give out free bike tune-ups to people in the neighborhood. Cool, right? How many churches have done free bike tune-ups? Right? So this guy did it. So guess who got the job? I got the job. So he was the one who set up the appointments. He was the one who did all the promoting. He was the one who did all the work of telling people about it. And he paid me $200 while I met my neighbors and fixed their bikes. I made money meeting my neighbors. Okay? Another thing that I do is uh, I work as an election official from time to time. So I'm, uh, I, I tend to, sometimes I'm a poll supervisor. And my poll, I tend to pick district uh, uh, poll stations that are literally in walking distance of where I live. Okay? But what happens is um, the night before, I'm given the election packages and the list of all the electors, my neighbors. So as I'm preparing my package to make sure I know what I'm doing tomorrow, I also pray over my neighbors because I see their names. And then during election day, I'm one of the most, uh, the this district where I live in Leslieville, uh, a lot of people are really politically uh, inclined. So we really have high voter turnouts. 78% was the last position I went, 78%. I saw 78% of the electors in my neighborhood. Thousands of my neighbors. And I saw all of them because I was a supervisor. And I thought to my head, I was praying the whole time, you don't know it yet, but I'm your pastor. <laughs> and then Justin Trudeau gave me a check. So good. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't complaining. I was like, I, I got some of that money. Thank you. So what I'm going to show you, this is, uh, I'm, I'm a board member in a community center in my neighborhood. So we're actually doing a, our new strategic plan. So we're doing a demographic study of our community. So I was the one who prepared this presentation for the board, and I called, who is my neighbor? Yeah? But what I did this time is usually what the city does is when they do these reports, they, they deal with really large population bases, okay? So uh, Toronto Danforth, for example, just got amalgamated from the last election. So now we're looking at 116,000 people. That's a data set that's too big. And so I proposed, I figured out this thing called aggregate areas. So in, in census, you can literally, instead, you can, you can look at data sets as small as postal codes, which is crazy. You can like really creep on your neighbors. Okay? Or you can do this thing called aggregate data sets. So I was saying like, this is too big. I was saying these were data issues, that this area is too big. And I said to them, social planning won't be releasing neighborhood-based data until spring of 2023. This is too late for us. So I said, I wanted to work with a more intimate data set. And then this is what I did. This is what aggregate areas look like. Smaller data sets. So these are the two areas that I picked up. Literally, our community center that uh, I'm on the board for is literally right here. Okay? And I live right here. Okay, literally my neighbors. And then, so these are some of the data sets that I was looking at. The population actually decreased a little bit. Oh no, increased by 2.3%. The reason why this is important because if I dealt with a bigger data set, it's, it actually showed that the growth was smaller because the neighborhood north of, north of us actually had a 5.6% population depth, right? 
So if I didn't look closer at who my neighbors are, I would have missed important information about my community. With me so far? By the way, you're welcome to lift your hands and ask me a question, okay? And then I want you to notice this. Median uh, uh, total income per household in my neighborhood is 147,000 average, okay? Literally, in my neighborhood, I live right beside a safe injection site. I'll see people who are really, really poor, right alongside people who are really, really rich, okay? They're like up a baby strollers, walking around, while there's a dude having an argument with himself over there yeah. on the side. It's like, cool, man, you're not having a good schizophrenic day. Cool. Um, so I'm going to zoom through this data. I'm more than happy to share this with you if you send me an email. But I'm doing this so you see how what data I look at and how that manifests in ministry. With me so far? OK. So age characteristics. It's all over the place in my neighborhood. Okay. It's pretty mixed, which is cool. Age by decade, also pretty mixed. Majority of people are working, but not a lot of kids, if you notice. A lot of young, a lot of, uh, young professionals. And then dwelling types, uh, most people live in apartments and condos, semi-detached houses and apartment buildings. It's a bit more unique because some parts of the city, you'll see more condos than houses. This one is kind of like an interplay of both. Uh, and this is an interesting part. 36% of people, 36% of my neighbors live by themselves. 36%. Imagine two-year lockdown during this pandemic, and you're by yourself. And then some of them, two persons. Okay? So that means that if you are a church doing, I don't know, children's ministries, might not be as important, right? Might still be more, it's up to you, I don't care. Um, here's another thing that's interesting. There's a lot of couples that are either, that there are actually a lot of couples in my neighborhood. A lot are married, 36% is pretty high for the city. And then 35% live in common. Okay? And then I look at these data, like family characteristics, one person household, couple family households, what this said to me when I was looking at this, this, my neighborhood is I realized that my wife and I are actually the most atypical people who live in our neighborhood. That before we had our daughter, I have a four-year-old now, it's part, it's, if I mess up today, it's because she woke me up at 4.30 and decided to hang out for an hour and a half. It's like, but daddy, I just need, a, just need this dog. I can't get mad. <laughs> anyway, we... And this is where the interplay of spiritual stuff, okay? Because sometimes you can get so caught up on community data and all the, the mind stuff that you lose track of the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? So I used to actually live in South Riverdale, literally the other side of Carlo. And when, when my wife and I were engaged, she said, we're going to live in Leslieville. And I said, but it's hard to get there. People love to live in Leslieville. No, we're going to live in Leslieville. She just felt it in her heart, felt it in her soul. That's going to be our neighborhood. And magically, that's where we found our apartment. And I didn't really understand why God put that in her heart. She didn't understand either until I looked at this data set. And I realized that majority of my neighbors are like me and my wife. So literally, we're seeing copies of ourselves all over the neighborhood. Right? 
by God's design, by the, the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit, God led us to that place. And it was both a, a combination of presence, incarnation, and data that brought us there. With me so far? Okay, sorry. Here's some more. Um, I'm just going to zoom through important ones. Here's another one. Living alone. 64% of my neighbors live alone. They live alone. Oh, here's a cool part. So income. It, this, is, uh, this is a more intimate data set. So the one that I showed you earlier was like a bigger data set. So this is a more intimate one. I want you to notice this. Does anyone notice what the largest household total income group per household in my neighborhood is? What is it? Say it. Over 200,000. Over 200,000. Over 200,000. Oops. Where did it go? No. Sorry. What happened? Languages. <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah. It's over, that, the other one was by individuals. And this is by per household, 200,000. A lot of my neighbors have money, right? So that means your strategy needs to be different, right? This doesn't mean, you know, you start having cocktail parties in Jesus' name. <laughs> <laughs> However, having like, oh, let's have a family dinner. It's like, uh, not a big deal, you know? So. And even languages, here's another interesting part. The majority of people in my neighborhood are actually Anglo. That's funny because uh, I'm Filipino, and lots of people have come from foreign lands to be missionaries in, in my country. And so I, I believe like I'm, I'm a representative of the Philippines. Like, look, we sent one back. We sent EJ to, to minister to the white people. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a lot. <laughs> But my, but my neighborhood is the, the original Chinatown, okay? So there's still a lot of Chinese uh, immigrants from my neighborhood. So that's really, really cool. Uh, and then condos, businesses, years built. Uh, here's the part that I really want us to hone in on. So visible minority, there's a lot of visible minorities in my neighborhood. Um, and then religion. Before, oh, did you guys see that? Good. I want you to guess. What do you think is the most dominant religion in my neighborhood? Muslim. Islam. Muslim? I hear Muslim. Who else? No religion. No religion. Who else? Do we do a poll? Who says Muslim? Raise your hands. Okay. Who says no religion? Winner is no religion. Ooh. No religion. Fascinating, isn't it? This means that method, we all know this method. You know, it goes like this. Let's, what's your name, brother? Nana. Nana? All right. Hey, Nana, did you know that you are a sinner? And that you need to be? Finish it with me. Saved by Jesus, who died on the cross. You can say that speech in my neighborhood. People are like, I don't know what you're talking about. 
Who's Jesus? The shortstop for the Yankees? Right? And I know there's this dialogue of like we live in a post-Christian age, which is somewhat true. It depends on what region, and that's more an American uh, narrative, to be honest with you. In my context, I live in a pre-Christian age. Pre-Christian age. That literally, for some people, I am the first person who's ever talked about the gospel to them. So the issue isn't so much that I don't want to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about the gospel. But I contextualize it to a way that makes sense to my neighbors. Okay? And it's also not attractional. I get invited to all sorts of parties in my neighborhood. I love it. I do none of the work and have all the fun. So good. And it's funny when people eventually find out that, wait, you're a minister? What? I try not to tell people. That's why. It's like, please don't call me reverend. Don't call me any of that. Don't call me pastor. I'm just EJ. Because I just want my neighbors to know me as EJ, their neighbor. Okay? And then um, I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to answer this question, hopefully, for you. Why does this matter? So there's this, I'm going to camp here for a little bit. What I'm advocating for is for us to have almost two streams of figuring out how to do ministry. One, you need to have a community toolbox. Okay? So some of that data stuff that I told you about, that's important. Right? Karen spent some time on the north side of my neighborhood, and she could already sense the difference. Right? When you walk the pavement, pray with your eyes open. Right? Because someone might bump into you and then they'll tell you to F off. And then you're like, oh, there goes my, there goes my witness. <laughs> <laughs> we need to have a community toolbox because we are actually living in a pre-Christian society. At least in the context of Toronto. On the suburbs, it's a different story. The context of faith is different. If I showed you statistics of Etobicoke or even Jane and Finch, religion is open game here. Okay? You're going to have open dialogue all the time. But downtown, it's a totally different story. Totally different story. And so I figure out ways on my community toolbox. I do things like a demographic study. I work in collaboration with other people, right? It's not the EJ show. It's like, it's not like, hey, look at us, great ministry doing our thing. I remember when uh, a ministry who shall remain unnamed did a thing in my, in my neighborhood, posted all the Instagram stuff, posted all the balloons, the tea, they have matchy-matchy t-shirts and all that stuff. They shot up in my neighborhood for one day and never came back. Why did you even come here? Right? And I remember I got so mad because... They went to a senior center that I, I had been building relationship with because no one had ever done anything there. And I said to them, they, they said, yeah, EJ, if you want to come here and, and just bless our seniors, I, no problem. And then I said, listen, I, I don't have a sustainable plan yet. Let me get back to you when I have that. Yeah, sure, no problem. And then this ministry shot in and used my yes to get in for their one-day thing. And you know where they do services? Mississauga. 
So you have your great Instagram post. Tell everybody, people, hashtag love Toronto. Oh, look at us with our t-shirts. You did fun stuff in my neighborhood. And you left the seniors that you cared for one day. High and dry. Right? It doesn't just happen in foreign countries. That's called Christian tourism. Okay? And it bothers me. Because I'm like, man, this is my hood. These are my neighbors. This is my spot. And here's another thing that we do, relational equity. Um, does anyone ever, ever heard of that term? So every time you build a relationship with someone, if, if, you're, if all you do is give and not expect anything in return, you're actually almost creating a relational bank. Okay? This happened by accident with me. And this is actually how this conference even got started. I've been here doing ministry for a long time, like building relationships with people. And then I realized, wait, I can, I can get my friends to hang out. And then something new might happen by getting my friends together. But it happened because I didn't have this transactional, uh, uh, this is going to be a, a bit of a term that I need to explain. In church sometimes, we, all, we function in transactional relationships. Right? I gave something to you, therefore give something, give something back. Right? Uh, they, I think in, in biolo biological terms, they call that transactional altruism. Right? I'm giving something to you in the expectation that I can get something back. Right? Does that sound like a Jesus principle? No. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave. Right? And I didn't realize by that living out that that idea, just giving, giving, constantly giving. I didn't realize that I was actually banking relational points with people, with organizations. And uh, my wife does it too, she does it with me. Now here's the spiritual part, prayer. Can't do anything without prayer. Young Cho passed away two years ago. I was that nerd who would listen to preaching tapes. And he, was, he preached here in Canada, and I'll never forget what he said. When you pray, you have power. When you have no power, it's because they have no prayer. It's elegant, sim elegantly simple. But we need to pray with our eyes open in our neighborhood. And then we practice radical hospitality. What I mean by that is sometimes, I remember one time, <laughs> we were getting out of the highway, and there was someone panhandling. And literally, my wife says, oh, I wonder if that's someone you know. Sure enough, we got closer. I'm like, hey, someone you know. Like, hey dude, how's it going? And I said, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm panhandling here now. It's like, hey, are you hungry? It's like, yeah. It's like, you want to do lunch? Yeah, sure. It's like, all right, here's my number. And like, I had him walk up the street where I live and he came over for lunch. To me, that's normal. Right? But for some people, it's only called radical because people don't do it. Okay? It shouldn't be radical hospitality. It should be normative sort of hospitality. And I know I have some noise in the house here, right? That's just what we do, right? Kain, wait, Kain. Did you have enough rice? <laughs> it's just what we do. I'm living on my culture in my neighborhood, right? And then at the same time, incarnation, leading of the Holy Spirit. The leading of the Holy Spirit looks like this. I'm going to close with this story, and I'd love to uh, just have you ask me questions.
So in the early pandemic, I'm sure all of you remember the time when we all had to negotiate or how, how much I'm going out. Do I mask, do I not mask? Do I come close with my relatives, don't come close with my relatives? We had to go through that too. The crazy part is, <laughs> I started doing uh, uh, just Zoom prayer meetings with other urban leaders. And one of them, my friend Bill Ryan, who's here somewhere, he was a director in a shelter at that time. And literally says to me, EJ, I uh, just need prayer for my staff. A lot of them are sick or a lot of them are in quarantine because they just got back. And literally said, if I lose two more staff, I may have to shut down my shelter. And as soon as he said that, felt the nudge from the Holy Spirit. All right, EJ, you're up. I haven't worked shelter in like a decade. Okay? And said, okay, I guess I got to do it. So I told, I told Bill, all right, sign me up, man. I'm, I'm even going to find other people for you. This is when we didn't even know what was going on. We didn't know how contagious it was. And here I am, like literally I had to come. And I, when I told my wife about this, she cried. It's like she knew God spoke to her too. I remember I had people tell me, are you crazy? Yeah, I'm a family. And I said to them, listen, the most dangerous place for me is to live outside of God's will. And what kind of witness am I showing my daughter if the life of faith that I have is talking, is thinking about safety over obedience? Right? It was hard. I'll tell you, man. God knows how many times I'm in that streetcar and I'm like, am I going to get it? Am I going to take it home? When I got home, literally, I, I put all my clothes into a, a bag and I had to scrub myself. And I remember one time I went to work, I was told, okay, uh, there's a relief shift coming. You all need to get tested. Someone you work with got COVID and his wife is hospitalized. And I didn't even have time to call my wife to tell her because I, we had to announce it to the shelter. And then the supervisor for whatever reason, okay, EJ, can you announce it? I'm like, dude, you're the supervisor, but dude, you're good at talking. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not new. <laughs> I remember the fear that I had. I'm like, what have I done? Right? But I say this not to paint myself as a hero. I say this to let you know that walking in obedience sometimes means that God asks us to walk into the fire. Some Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego people did that. You know, there was a fourth person in there. I don't know who that was. Jesus, I don't know. And how that manifested is I remember the fear, and I remember come fall. We're still in lockdown. It's like November 2020. And uh, my wife and I were feeling the brunt of, of parenting a toddler. And it was just us two. And we're thinking, man, if we're struggling and we know a lot of our neighbors are like us, couples around our age with young kids, they must not be okay. We have Jesus, but they don't. What can we do? So literally, my wife and I conspired in our living room. It's like, okay, she's connected to the South Riverdale Parent Child Center. So, and I'm the board member at the Ralph Thornton Community Center. And then I thought, well, I have a friend, Connie Jacob, who was a former Mission Canada worker who does this thing called Brave Parenting because her, her son has uh, severe mental health issues. 
So I called Connie, I said, Connie, can you just do an online workshop for my neighbors to just encourage them on how to like survive tough times in parenting? She said, yeah, of course, no problem. So she sent me her stuff. Uh, I called the, the community center, our executive director. I said, listen, we'll pay for the speaker. Can you just help us uh, spread it through the network? He said, yeah, no problem, that sounds great. And then my wife called the Parent Child Center. They did the same thing. And, 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 and we, we only promoted for three weeks, okay, three weeks. 38 of my neighbors registered. 38 families. I want you to think about that. 38 families. On the night of, only 27 came, but still 27 families. And when we heard their stories, they are, these are not church people. <clears throat> I remember one lady, she, she got a divorce during this time. She was like gripping a, a glass of red wine so hard, telling us her story while sobbing, just sobbing, and was grateful she was being heard. We had same-sex same couples telling us about their struggles. Another one was a blended family, all like just people who just wanted to share their broken state. Imagine if your church had 27 families come, and instead of you doing your stuff in the platform, they just got up there and told you what junk they have in their lives. That's what we have. And literally at the end, uh, we just ended. I remember how holy it felt. When we ended the call, and my wife and I just looked at her and said, what did, we, what did we just do? What did we just do? We became people of shalom, seek the peace of the city. Think about how much, how much permission we had. Think about how much... Um, <laughs> I hear so many people say, oh, people in the city, they're not interested in Jesus. They're interested in Jesus. They're just not interested in your methods. Because think about how many yeses we got to do that. And that's just one of many. Uh, I'll finish this story and then part of your questions. One of the things I got to do last year was I did a, we did a tree funeral in my neighborhood. Because Metrolinx is like coming through our neighborhood. So a bunch of the trees were going to get cut down. So some community organizers decided to do a tree funeral. So uh, I asked, oh, you're doing a tree funeral. Do you have a minister doing that? And literally the organizer said, oh, we didn't think any self-respecting minister would actually agree. I said, I guess I'm not self-respecting then. <laughs> oh, you would do it? Sure. They did all the work. Okay. 300 of my neighbors showed up. My city councilor was there. My MPP was there. And I got the microphone first. And I got to tell them about how the trees remind us of the goodness of our earth, of how creation was meant to be good. The trees remind us of life. The trees remind us of the, that the city is just one part of our lives. This is all Genesis 1 stuff. This is a recontextualization of Genesis 1 in a context of my neighborhood. I got to proclaim the gospel. And so I say this to you to show you what it could look like to both have a community toolbox and 
the work of the Holy Spirit helping you. Good? Any questions? Or comments? Yes? What do you mean by incarnation? So incarnation, in intentional community? You mean this one? Yeah. Yeah. So intentional community is like you're intentionally building relationships with one another. You know, actually being friends and hanging out with people. Incarnation. Oh, incarnation. Incarnation is like you're, like like what I said. Like I'm bringing, I'm almost the ambassador of Christ in this place. I just came up with that right now. That sounded brilliant. I'm going to use that again. <laughs> we are ambassadors of Christ. Right? Don't be a bad ambassador. What I mean by incarnation is like, um, it's amazing how sometimes in church, we actually have things that I call church culture, and then Jesus imitation. They're not the same thing. They should be. So incarnation to me is being an uh, imitator of Christ in my neighborhood. Because sometimes, let's be honest, there's stuff we believe in church culture that's actually not biblical. You know? Like, how many of you have had that argument of hymns or contemporary music? Right? Right? That's not biblical. You think Jesus cares? You know? It's like, oh, you guys are still singing? Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's not biblical. But we argue about it. Right? Or like people complaining about the sermon. Again, like that's not Jesus' imitation. Right? Or like, this is public confession. I've gone to theological arguments online. <laughs> okay? But Jesus doesn't care. There's nothing in the Bible that says that there's going to be a theological questionnaire when you come face to face with God. You know what we're going to be asked? When I was hungry, did you, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you give me clothes? When I was thirsty, did you give me water? When I was in prison, did you visit me? I know for sure that's going to be asked. Right? If you don't agree with me, again, argue with the Bible, yell at it. So, anyways, but that's what I mean by incarnation. It's like recognizing that um, you're an ambassador where you go. You know, trying to, instead of having people come to you, Go to people. There are, <laughs> one of my best discoveries before the pandemic was uh, I was part of this uh, a dinner group. So what it is, is, just we're trying to support local restaurants in the neighborhood. And so someone just organizes it and says, this is our spot, come if you want. So I remember I went to one and then uh, I was chatting with a neighbor that I just met for the first time. And he said to me, Oh, I was mentioning about the curling. There's a curling rink down the street. I was like, oh, yeah, that used to be the CCM factory. I'm like, how did you know that? Like the bike shop. Oh, uh, someone was telling us about it on our, like, monthly talking series. Wait, monthly talking series? What is that? Oh, yeah, like a bunch of us get together, pool our money together, and then we find an interesting speaker to talk, about, talk to us about something interesting. Wait. <laughs> So every month, a bunch of you get together, pool your money together, and bring someone to talk to you. I was like, this is like the Oropagus and Paul all over again, right? Because here's the thing. In Romans it says, the law of the Spirit of God is written on men's hearts. 
this natural inclination to, to listen and to learn and to be in community, these are all human desires. It's embedded in our DNA, right? So instead of us assuming maybe God's not at work, remember I, I used to say this thing, Lord, show up in this place. And God's like, I've been here the whole time. <laughs> You're the one who just showed up. Good missionaries assume that God is already at work. God has already come before. And, and our job is to figure out what is God doing here? How can I come alongside? How can I go along the, with the momentum and not be a distraction? But good question. Uh, what time are we doing? Oh, it's almost lunchtime. Any, okay, two more, uh, three more questions. You and me, go ahead. So stats can, so stats can, you just need to, uh, I'm happy to send me an email, I'm happy to show you some stuff, but um, so the stuff that I was showing, the aggregate data, that's like a new thing, not many people even know that, I, because when I was digging, like man, this, looking at 110,000 is too big, but looking at 26,000, that's, that's still big, but that's pretty good. That's pretty good. There's another aspect to uh, community exegesis where like, you literally look at houses. Because here's the thing, people are talking about themselves without speaking to you. Okay? Uh, for example, who here has a window in their house? Okay, well, if I look at your window, what's in your, what's in your window? Or what's in your wall? Let's say in your room. Do you have posters? No posters? Nothing? Blank? Um, You're minimalist. That's what it says. <laughs> um, if you look through my window, yeah, uh, you just see furniture. I have a lot of a lot of clothes, so I have extra closets. Oh, so we know you like yeah, chests, chests yep. and dressers. So I think that's what you would see. No, but that says something about you. Without talking to you, we can look into your. Oh, this guy likes clothes, right? And then all of a sudden, if someone struck a conversation with you about clothes, hey, we got something to talk about. Right? But if someone's like, oh, I see, uh, who else has stuff in their wall? Tell me what's in your wall. Anyone? You don't put stuff in your wall? Yes. A TV. A TV. What does that say? <laughs> you like watching TV. And movies. <laughs> and movies. Yeah, so now, if I, if I walked into your house and saw that you have a nice TV, right? That means you thought about that. I would naturally think, oh, let me talk about TV and movies with this person. Right? People are saying something about themselves without speaking to you. You know, sometimes in the city I bring people to, to a house, okay, what do you see? You'll see a British flag, okay, these people like, like UK, uh, cool. <laughs> or like they have a Canada flag, or people have all sorts of stuff. I, I, I challenge you to walk through your neighborhood and I don't know, start paying attention to what people put on their doors, what people put on their uh, windows, uh, but, and it's people are saying something about themselves all the time. So in case you want, I wonder what my neighbors are going through. Well, just walk and look at what they have to say. But next question. Uh, thanks so much for this, EJ. I thought it was very helpful and informative. I'm just curious, in terms of like when you say that there's a huge secular population or like maybe a pre-Christ type of atmosphere, 
Do you find that folks are maybe like neutral, like they're not being like positively or negatively? Yeah. Or do you find that, are there folks that maybe are like influenced by, I guess, popular culture or this idea of what Christianity is supposed to be? A lot of people just, like I said this to my friend, he yeah. thought I was joking. So literally he asked his coworker, hey, do you know what Easter is? I was like, he did legitimately didn't know. That's so interesting. Just time away with my family. Wow. You, like, honest, do you know what Easter is? They don't know. It's so much so that literally in Christmas, you don't have to do anything new. Just literally do the Christmas story. And for some people, that's new. It's like, wow, I didn't know Jesus was a baby. <laughs> you laugh, but for some people, legitimately, they just, they don't know. Which is opportunity. I don't see that as a challenge. I see that as opportunity. It's easier to bring someone to faith when they're neutral. Right? Than when they're against you. And some of them, honestly, I used to go to this pool party all the time. I don't know why my, my, my now neighbor used to bring me all the time. And her boyfriend, we would have like arguments to like late, late at night. The last time we had a long argument, I was like, Dude, I hear the birds chirping. I need to go home. <laughs> okay? And he was an evangelistic atheist. So he was trying to convert me into non-belief. <laughs> and I was like, ah, okay, well, I'm trying to convert you to Jesus. So, so it was this funny tug of war. And yet, we're neighbors. And we're friends. And I hear his music from time to time. We like our Facebook thread. So relationship cuts through all that stuff too, right? You can, like, um, one of my, my good friends was an, is an agnostic lesbian. <laughs> and I don't say that to people. She tells people. It's like, we shouldn't be friends because I'm an agnostic lesbian and he's a Pentecostal preacher. And they're like, what? <laughs> well, you guys get along. I know. Isn't that great? I don't even say this. She does. Right? And because people don't have as much baggages. Uh, some would, some might, but I find it's rare. But that's a great question. Uh, two more questions? Anyone? Or did I say something that do you want clarification? Or? Yeah. With relational equity and how you say it was like a bank, like how do you, I guess, not let everything Well, if you're in a posture of like, being opportunistic, how can I just be a, a blessing? If you keep doing that, the the withdrawing for the bank becomes natural. Because I have to think about it like this. You can either do ministry from a place of scarcity or abundance. What I mean by that is scarcity is I don't have enough, so therefore every little thing that I got, I got to hold on to it tight, right? So if you didn't build enough relational equity, you're doing ministry out of scarcity. You have to hold on to the little that you have, because that's all you have. But if all you do is like pour in, pour in, pour in. If you're overflowing and that's where you're withdrawing from, you're withdrawing from abundance. It doesn't feel transactional anymore. Does that make sense? It's almost like, well, this is just natural now. Of course we need to work together. Of course, we need to be aligned together. Of course, we need to do, do work together. Like, um, I was in a, a, a house party three weeks ago, 
and there's only one Christian in the room. And we had lots of talks about life, about, uh, about our community, our neighborhood, you know. I'm so proud in my neighborhood, people actually really care for each other, that uh, there was a fire where a family got, their house went to flames, and my neighborhood raised $77,000 for them in a week, in a week, right? So there's a generosity in my neighborhood. Like, man, it's, it's, it's almost like you see, that's where you see signs of the kingdom. Instead of looking at deficiency, right? Oh, look, hey, did you know that you're a sinner? That's a deficiency idea, right? People don't need to be told that they suck. They already know. <laughs> if, you want, if, if you're not sure, just ask people if they have a therapist. <laughs> Okay, you go to there. I think I suck. I, I need to not be sucky. You know, so when it becomes from a, an abundance perspective, it's almost like, hey, you know what? There's some goodness here. How can I actually lean into that goodness? And perhaps that's a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes? Um, is the church that you go to in Montreal, like where you live? Uh, Here's the thing. On paper, I go to Stone Church. I'm barely there. Uh, I accidentally started a church in my neighborhood, which is mostly my neighbors. It happened by accident because um, <laughs> my friend Gene, uh, Christmas four years ago, he said to me, his leg got amputated, so I was visiting him. And he says, hey, EJ, like, what are we doing for Christmas? I said, what do you mean? Like, I'm not a pastor anymore. Say, looking forward to doing nothing. And he said, but it's Christmas. It's like, yeah, I'm not a pastor anymore. And he said, but you know people that have nowhere to go. Well, so I went home, told my wife. She cried, we do, we do know people that have nowhere to go. And so we just invited people to our home for Christmas. And uh, it was my, my friend who was homeless, uh, a de-churched family, and another family that they love the faith. And uh, yeah, we had communion together. And we were like, that felt good. And then let's do Easter. So we did Easter, and then this thing kept keeps on growing. We don't actually have a website, um, but uh, for, if everyone showed up, we're about a, a community of about almost 40 people. We have no website. You will not find us, and everyone's my neighbor. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you what that looks like. I remember one time, our last gathering before Christmas, I asked people, as you were walking, what did you notice this week? that deserved some attention and prayer. And everyone had an answer. You wanna know why? Everyone walks. Everyone's my neighbor. So, you have a follow up, go ahead. Oh, yeah, so I live in one neighborhood, I work with another in my church, and so another. So yeah. with your continuity piece that you were talking about, right, where you just, some people go and drop in right there in Mississauga, they would be in Pleasantville. Where would you like point people so there's different iterations. That used to be my old life, because yeah. I used to live in the beaches. I worked at Yon Street Mission, which is on Yon Street. And then I was a church in the city, which is at St. Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, I think it just depends on your season. Yeah. But uh, God confronted me to make my world smaller. Uh, and and really, 
for smaller in my city, that's still a lot of people. Yeah. You know, if I walk one block each way in my neighborhood, it's like 3,000 people. So imagine if I reach 1% of my neighborhood. How big is my church? 2,000? That's 26,000? 2,600? What would happen to me if I reach 1% of my neighborhood? I'd be a freaking rock star, right? Right? I'd get paraded all around. Look at this guy in front of the surface. Technically, I reach 1%. That's how bad it is. Okay? But what I would rather is. Uh, a bunch of mini communities pop up all over the place. I love viral ideas. Even this conference, I don't want this to be a 1,000 person conference. What I would rather is a bunch of 200 plus gatherings all over our country, every city, right? Because Jesus, how many people did Jesus really disciple? Anyone? 12. 12, are you sure? 72. Are you sure 12? <laughs> It was 12. It was just 12. Just like, this is good. <laughs> These guys will get it done because viral ideas, right? Viral ideas. It really depends. You got to negotiate that for yourself. For me, it just, it really shifted my world to have um, my neighbor be a literal, uh, a literal reading, my literal neighbor. Because I remember someone, a fellow board member, I was talking to her, and she's atheist, but we had a chat about, we had an incident about something. And I said to her, listen, I want you to know, because you're my neighbor, you matter to me. And she just kind of got choked up. <laughs> it's like a, a small thing to say, right? But um, I'll say this. One thing I've learned about 16 years of ministry in the city, there is a profound loneliness in our society. People are craving relationship. I bet you, you will have more buy-in with unchurched people by inviting them over for dinner than you would for church programs. If all of you in here decided to invite people over for dinner, they would do it. You know, the Filipinos, you know, got it, yeah. <laughs> this is actually, oddly enough, this is my culture being played out here. I'm bringing, I'm bringing this Manila boy stuff and bringing it here by the community that I grew up with. And I remember because when I moved here, uh, the reason why I, I went through, I think I know now, it was a depression. I went through a deep depression. Because when I was a little boy, I knew that even though I'd be playing around, the neighborhood was watching over me, right? When I would make a mistake, my mom knows if someone calls her. <laughs> you know, I was always watched. Uh, I played with neighbor kids. Uh, like, and there was a sense of community. And in, in my culture, there's lolos, lolas, titas. Like, even if someone wasn't my actual grandmother, but they are from, of grandmother stage, they're still lola, right? There is a, a deeply embedded sense of community where I come from. And so ironically enough, because of this profound loneliness in our culture, it's actually my cultural DNA. That's the antidote, right? The antidote. Or like, so radical hospitality is not radical in my culture. It's normal hospitality, right? It's only radical here because, I don't know, people don't invite people for dinner anymore. 
I don't know why. But good question. Um, how are we doing with that? Last question? Yes. Yeah, I'm coming from Africa and then uh, I came into Africa, Canada view. And the things you're saying are it's strange to me that people here are really anti-Jesus, anti-God, Christmas and this that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Because back home it was the Western world that brought Christianity, missionaries, and the rest of them. Yeah, there's more Christians in Africa. I've seen all of this thing out of the city. It's shocked to me. Yeah. The world out here don't know anything about Jesus, don't believe about Jesus. Can you tell me what happened? No, I, I get that. I, I know I know that intimately because that's that happened to me. Um, and so it's ironic that uh, the Western culture was the one who brought Christianity to, to where we came from. But then here, uh, people have lost track. Or maybe the Christianity that they were teaching about was a counterfeit one in the first place. What I mean by that is this. The Jesus that's infused with power and dominance, that is a counterfeit gospel. Okay? For those of us who come from the bottom, from nothing, how we read the scriptures is closer to the original intent. So what you're actually recognizing, sister, is this is your mission field. That the Jesus that you encountered from your homeland you're bringing the real Jesus here. The one who cares about the, the nobodies. The one who cares about the people that are being thrown out. I remember I brought a bunch of young people <laughs> over to Tent City in, in Allen Gardens. I watched them weep as they walked through these tents. Like nobody cares. Nobody cares. We were here to... to actually bring Jesus, the real Jesus, to people. People are against that, domin that Jesus of dominance, the colonial imagination of Christ. And I'm also against that. That's okay. <laughs> but I'm for like, I, the Jesus for the nobodies. You know, there's a movie out right now, I'm probably going to cry that old Jesus uh, would uh, Jesus revolution, that's also the Jesus of the nobodies. So what you're seeing is this counterfeit gospel never produced fruit. That's the tie-in to Celine this morning. They were not tied to the real vine. So for those of us who are tied to the real vine, we are to produce fruit and show people the real Jesus. Right? And, and that's that's a mixture of, of the work of the Holy Spirit and data set of community exegesis, right? Because it is a Western arrogance to assume that just because you know more that you all of a sudden let go of faith. I wrote a paper about that. That actually they're recognizing community development strategies in other parts of the world. They recognize that by removing God out of the equation, they actually dehumanize the people. Right? It's a Western arrogance to assume that God is removed out of the equation. But for those of us who are people of faith, we believe in mystery. All you're seeing, my sister, is that you're the missionary too. Yeah. I'll close with this idea. I'm here to let you know I want to get fired. <laughs> okay? I'm only special because 
uh, not too many people want to do the same thing. But a lot of the things I do are actually elegantly simple. They're simple, but some people think they're brave. But if most of us, all of us in Galvanize just do a little bit more, I can actually quit. I can get fired. And just have a regular job and be just like everybody else. Right? So I pray that for you. I pray that you also take these tools and like now start to imagine some new creative things for your neighborhood. You know? For my Filipino friends, potluck. Oi, potluck tayo, yeah. But I, I remember, I'll close with this. My, my dad is from Guagua. And I remember one time I was visiting and my, uh, my, my grandma's sister, uh, Lola Pinin, uh, she, <laughs> she set up this big fire in the middle of the compound. And I was like, what's that about? She had a big ass pot, like super big, this big, right? And then she, she starts boiling the water to this big metal spoon and starts throwing the ingredients in. It was like uh, glutinous rice, I think some ube mix, and then she, she spent like two hours making this thing. And when she was done, she said, Oi, tapos na, we're finished. And everyone showed up with their bowls. And like, would, would, uh, she would put a little spoonful into their bowls and then people spend time to eat. We need to recreate that in Jesus' name. A village, the neighborhood, the community. So for me, this is just digging into my roots. This is who I am, right? And for some of us, we come from communal countries, uh, uh, communities, like Africa's communal community, right? Eastern cultures are commun communal cultures. Actually, even European cultures were communal cult cultures. You know where they commune? The pub. <laughs> That's the community center in Ireland, the pub. <laughs> or Britain, same thing, right? If we can recapture that and then recognize that we can be ambassadors of Christ in these places, then you're building relational equity. I hope that helps. If you enjoyed listening to EJ and you'd like to consider becoming one of his supporters, go to the show notes at sidewalkskylinepodcast.com and uh, there's a link there uh, to his Mission Canada uh, donation page. You can learn more about EJ at, on, on the website there. And uh, on our next episode, uh, we're going to hear uh, Professor Jesse Sedergo from Tyndale University. Uh, Jesse is the Assistant Professor of Contextual Ministry and specializes in uh, public theology, urban ministry, missional leadership, community development, and social justice. Uh, a former director of Street Involved Services at uh, Young Street Mission, Evergreen Center, and also uh, was involved in church planting in Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, so um, another uh, great voice on urban ministry uh, at the Our City Toronto Conference. So uh, please uh, do subscribe to this podcast so you can continue to hear this great content. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, and you're listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. Mm -hmm.